0: And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little something about a Scotsman in the 17th century named George Wishart. He was Bishop of Edinburgh for a time, and often on the front lines of several political battles in the tumultuous, tumultuous 17th century century of Britain. One day he found himself on the losing end of events and he was charged with treason. He was condemned to death by hanging. Again, these were volatile times. These were quickly changing times in the British Isles and so Wishart hoped that perhaps the political tide would turn before he was executed and his sentence would be remitted. Nevertheless, the day of his execution came. He was marched up to the platform. The noose was placed around his neck. And In those days, it was customary for the condemned to have a psalm of their own choosing be read aloud publicly before their death. Uh, You can imagine most criminals picked their favorite if they had one. can imagine psalm 23 would be a frequent go-to with its language of walking in the valley of the shadow of death and god being there but wishart picked psalm 119 the longest with 176 verses not because it was his favorite but because he was shrewd and sure enough somewhere before the maybe two-thirds mark In reading Psalm 119 publicly, a messenger arrived with news of his pardon, and he was free. So the saying goes, Psalm 119 saved his life. And indeed, Psalm 119 has been saving lives in various ways throughout the years. Really, it's it's life-giving, we could say. It's a psalm about the Bible, and it's in the Bible that we see life. God is life, and he communicates that life and the message of life and the hope of life through this Bible. So it's no coincidence that something like 12 times in Psalm 119, the psalmist talks about the word giving, life. It's a prayer to God of thanksgiving and prayer requests, relating everything in life, including suffering, relating it to God, Through the Word, by the Scriptures. And this very fact that we relate to God primarily through the Scriptures, this side of heaven, that implies a whole lot. It confronts self sufficiency, it confronts those who might want to seek for the answers within or without in the culture. It's true that every human being has an innate sense that God is there, even though many suppress it. It's also true that God's creation speaks loud and clear in various ways. It says that he's there and that he's majestic and creative and powerful and and sovereign and wise and all that. But it's only in the scriptures that we really discern what God is like who he is, what he names himself, what he says, what he's done, how he saves. So Psalm 119 is a celebration of that word and the God of that word. Last week we took time for a bit of an introduction to this great psalm, and this week we'll begin chewing on this psalm bit by bit, week by week, at the rate of a couple of stanzas per week. A stanza, as you might see, is eight verses in this psalm. They can vary in other psalms. But here we have eight verses per stanza, and we're going to take two stanzas per week. So let's read the first 16 verses of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes, do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's God's word for us today. Let me say a little something about the structure of these verses. As I said last week, I think there is some intricate structure in Psalm 119, even beyond the obvious where it follows the the alphabet of the Hebrew language, eight verses at a time. I said last week that there's more structure than that, but it's often subtle. It's often buried in the Hebrew text and not easily available in the translation, say, in English. However, there are some matters of structure that can't even be discerned in our English Bibles. Let me point out a couple of those today. Remember what I said last week, that it seems like each stanza goes together as a pair. So verses 1 through 8 go with... 9 through 16, and that's why we're looking at those together today. Well, let's see if that's discernible in our two stanzas. Notice the ending of each stanza. And really, you should be looking down in your Bibles, whatever format you have them in, on a screen or on paper. Look down. See this for yourself. Notice how each ends. Verses 7 and 8 begin with, I will. As does verse 15 and 16, I will. I will. That isn't coincidental. You don't have another I will statement anywhere else in these 16 verses. This is purposeful. Notice how each of these stanzas begin. It's not with the exact same language, but it's with the same rough idea. So verse 1 talks about being blameless. And verse 9 talks about being pure. The same idea, almost perfect synonyms. You'll also notice that when the psalmist directly addresses God with that second person, you, Y-O-U, it's in the same place in each stanza. Verse 4, you have commanded. And then verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Now you might think that this is trying to identify Waldo or something, that this is playing verbal games with the Bible. But this is actually just how Hebrew poetry works. Most of us aren't familiar with it. We're not used to it. Hebrew poetry is not as predictable as my shoddy poetry to my wife where every eighth word rhymes, like rap music from the 80s, you know, time, and you can just predict it, rhyme, it's coming, you know, that kind of thing. Hebrew poetry is not like that. It plays with things. It's less predictable. It's more subtle. It's more intricate. And we'll see as this plays out in this psalm that with each pair of stanzas, the psalmist will use different tools, different methods, different mechanisms. It's like he has a a tool belt of Hebrew poetry with lots and lots of tools in it. And he likes to just change it up just for fun, just for, for poetic reasons. But it tells us that there is intentionality if we can begin to see it. Let's be praying throughout this time together in Psalm 119 that we would see more from God's word. All right, let's put structure aside now and then let's just begin to sort of sit under and learn from the example that we have in Psalm 119. Four D's, four D words will help hang our thoughts And just by the way, the first and the third will be longer and the second and fourth will be relatively quick. I just tell you that because you're going to see verse, you're going to see point one for a long time and you're going to be looking at your watch and thinking we're here forever. Not quite forever, just enough. All right, the first D is direction. Direction. That's what we have in the first four verses. Direction. It describes a way, a path, something to be walked in. And this is God's way. You see the use of the Bible synonyms, his testimonies, his law, his commands, his precepts. We're to walk in these as his people. We're to live them out in our life, step by step, day by day. You might notice that Psalm 119 is imitating Psalm 1 at this point. Psalm 1 is the very first psalm, not just accidentally or coincidentally. It's the psalm that sets the tone and the agenda for the whole book of psalms or the Psalter. And Psalm 119 begins by echoing Psalm 1 to bring us back to the beginning and remind us us of this. Here's Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed walks the way. That's how Psalm 119 begins. And thus it begins not really with prayer, but with instruction. Really, Something like a personal reminder, perhaps, or a thesis, a premise. He'll get to be praying here in no time at all. It's verse 4 where that starts. And really, that prayer will continue until the last verse of Psalm 119. Or maybe these prayers, plural, will continue into the end. But verses 1 through through 3 are not a prayer that's instruction, it's a premise. A premise about God's direction, his ways, his revelation of his will. Again, that's God's word. That's where we go to find out what God wants us to do and what not to do. And that, again, by itself, implies a whole lot. It doesn't allow us to arbitrarily select what we're going to obey or what we think is right or what we decide is wrong. No, you see, when we begin to think that some of God's ways, yes, are good and right, but others are archaic, embarrassing, maybe not that reasonable or useful or unrealistic, we're beginning to think that we're smarter than God. And that is another world than the world in which the psalmist lives and operates. God's ways are His ways. They're inscrutable. This is His book. This is what He says. And so His ways are to be kept diligently, verse 4. We're to be blameless about this, verse 1. Verse 3, we're to be those who do no wrong. And in fact, all of this is actually done unto the Lord. Not just in actions, but also in worship and emotion. Verse 2, we're to seek him with our whole heart. So this isn't just about conduct. It's about communion too. Relationship. Now here's where we need to pause and zoom out from the passage itself. And you probably feel that if you're a Christian and you know something about the Bible. You're probably wanting me to clarify what these words mean and maybe what they don't mean. You see, Christians, they know. The Bible teaches it so thoroughly that none of us are truly blameless. None of us have truly, without asterisk, footnote or qualification, have sought God with the whole heart. In fact, all of us are born going astray, going away, going against his plan and his revealed will. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they set the tone, they set the the pace, they set the agenda for all of us. And remember what they did when they first sinned, They hid from God. Fellowship had been broken. That's the world in which we're all born into. So there's a sense in which there is no Psalm 119 man. There's a sense in which there's only one Psalm 119 man. Jesus, the perfect king, God's son, God in the flesh, He perfectly and utterly and completely obeyed God's commandments, not just in actions, but in in motives and emotions. So if we come to Psalm 119 like the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Well, you're not going to make it. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. We'll never be good enough. We'll never treat God's word like we should and like it calls us to. So what do we do? We run to Jesus. We put our hope in him. We trust in his righteousness, not our own. We trust in his death for our sins in not our minimization project of sinning. Now I know all this is not explicit in our passage, but that's why we need to zoom out. That's what is assumed on the whole of the Bible. It's what is hinted at in a psalm like Psalm 24, which asks the question, Who can enter into God's presence? Who can be with him? Or in the language of our psalm, who's really blessed? Well, Psalm 24 answers... He who has clean hands, a pure heart, and a clean mouth. And that's none of us. None of us can check those boxes. But the very next verse of Psalm 24 gives us hope when it directs our attention not to ourselves, but to the coming of the Promised One, the King of Glory. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. That's referring to Christ. He's the one who could enter into God's presence. And not just for himself, but for us. Not just with a a copy of sacrifice, but Hebrews says, but with his own blood. He didn't just enter into the copies of the heavenly realities, which are the tabernacle and then the temple. Hebrews says he entered heaven itself. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Meaning, the blessedness of Psalm 119 comes through Jesus He deserved the blessings, not us, but he shares with us the blessing because of what he did. That has to be understood before we begin to try to live out Psalm 119. We need something more than grit and discipline. We need a Savior, first and foremost, one who was himself the Word. So if you're not a Christian, it might be easy for you to hear some things I say this morning or to hear from the Bible itself. Something that sounds like, you know what? God will like you if you read the Bible more. You should pray more and read the Bible more and maybe you'll do it enough that the scales tip in your favor and he lets you in. But no, this is already assumed as Mercy and forgiveness, a covenantal relationship born out of reconciliation between God and sinners. This is far from a verse a day keeps the devil away. Or a chapter a day may get you in. Let's hope. No. It's all of grace. But, But then having known something of his grace, having been reconciled to him, now this book isn't merely do this and live, don't do this and you will die. Now this is sweet and pleasant. You see, having said all that I said over the last few minutes or so, it doesn't mean that Psalm 119 is someone else's mail, not for you. This is just about Jesus, a perfect man. You're not him or her, and so you can disregard this big chunk of the bible no 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 you see on the one hand this man of psalm 119 the real guy who actually wrote it though he offers a lofty example in wanting to follow god's word he was himself imperfect he he was a sinner he 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 acknowledged going astray and yet he can also say verse 22 I have kept your testimonies. That's a strong statement. He can say in verse 80, May my heart be blameless. How can he say blameless? It's too lofty of a term. Well, you can understand this. There's a sense in which that word at times means perfection. It's the same word used referring to the unblemished sacrifices of the Old Covenant. They were unblemished, blameless. They had to be pure. However, that word blameless can also be used in a relative way. In the Bible, Noah is said to be blameless, but he wasn't perfect. We know that. Job is said to be blameless, but we know theologically that Job wasn't sinless even before he was tried by Satan. Blameless can mean direction of our lives, not perfection in our lives. We have to remember then that God didn't forgive us so that we could freely rack up sin. His intent with grace is not just to get us off but to get us in, to bring us back, to restore us, to fix us. That's what he's up to. He won't do it all at once. We're still works in project. Project. Wait, what is the phrase? Works in progress. That's it. He's restoring all that was lost in the garden. Obedience and fellowship. He's bringing these in and ultimately in the end giving us even more. And so we should want to seek him. We should want to go to the word. We should want to know more. We should want to shape our lives to the pattern that we see in this book. We should be motivated to do that because it's right, because this is his plan, and it's a glorious plan. But we can also be motivated because of the blessing that is promised when we do it. Psalm 119 begins with the double promise of blessing. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Now, blessed doesn't mean riches or fame or unusual athletic talent. That's how that word blessed is primarily used in our culture today. Famous people, athletes and wealthy people... Well, hashtag they're blessed, they say. But in the Bible, blessed is something more spiritually oriented than that. Even in the Old Testament, you think of how Aaron blessed the people in that famous Numbers 6 passage. He said, the Lord bless you, and this is what that word means, and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. Blessedness is joy that comes from a right relationship with God. It may or may not have anything to do with other blessings. So poor people can be blessed. Matthew 5, the persecuted can be blessed. But let's not water this down. Psalm 119 says, There is blessing, joy, wholeness connection with God, more of Him when we go God's way. So that's the direction, number one. Number two is dependence, dependence. Now the direction is clear, it's God's ways in His word. But the walk, living that out every day, well that's going to need some help. So notice in verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I think there's a suspicion of his potential waywardness apart from the Lord's keeping. He's longing to be kept by God. We sang earlier this morning, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, it's like this psalmist knew of that hymn. No, he knew the theology of that hymn. And so in verse 10, he says, With my whole heart I seek you. That's one side of the coin. The other is, let me not wander from your commandments. That's a man who knows he's needy, independent on God. Verse eight, he just simply says, do not utterly forsake me. He knew he needed God's help. He knew he needed God's sustaining power. In verse 12, he even prays for God to teach him more of the word. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, do we feel needy before the Lord? Do we feel needy about what he's called us to do? Not just needy, Because our circumstances are hard, that can be part of it. Are we asking for his help? Not just asking for his help with paying the bills and parenting the kids and getting some things done tomorrow. Do you ever pray for his help spiritually? Pray for him to keep you and sustain you. Pray that he would give you help and power to obey today. Is it a regular part of your prayer life to pray like that? If we take it up a notch further? In our passage, it's every few verses that this kind of thing comes up where he asks God for help as he expresses his need before him. Now, what a kind and merciful, gentle God we have who doesn't want us even, let alone require us. He doesn't want us to come before him with a facade. He doesn't want us to come before him with a cloak of trumped-up righteousness. We don't need to cover up a thing when we come to tell him that we're needy. Think of how we go out in public. Maybe not to the grocery store, but, you know, when you go to a wedding like I did last night. Well, you, you shower, for one, you know. You, you hold up this dress and that dress, and your husband tells you which one might look better. You might even try it on. As I said to my wife last night, I said, should I wear the, the bow tie? Which is cool, but the longer tie kind of hides my belly better should I wear the longer tie she agreed yeah go with the longer tie (laughs) you know you might put cover-up on a pimple some will put on cologne or perfume and there's nothing wrong with any of these things if we're doing them with the right motives but my bigger point is that we don't have to do any of that spiritually speaking with God We come to Jesus not as fancy people, but little children. We we come to to Jesus as sick people who are desperately in need of a physician. And that's, of course, true when we first come to Jesus for salvation. But it's also similar with our walk, with our Christian life, with the day-to-day, with our growth in him, or lack thereof. We are needy. We're dependent on him. Even when we don't voice it, even when we don't feel it. So, talk to him about it. Third D is determination. Determination. Now, his dependence on the Lord is real, right? It's not pretended dependence, it's not mere lip service. This is real dependence, but his dependence doesn't produce laziness. He doesn't just sit on his spiritual hands and wait for God to zap him. He prays for God's help, but there's also intermingled resolve, determination, a decision to seek, to praise, to keep. Again, this is how each stanza ends with this determination or resolve. I will praise you with an upright heart, verse 7. I will keep your statutes, verse 8. I will meditate in your precepts, verse 15. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Many of the Psalms do the same kind of thing. They seem to move emotionally and land on resolve at the end. Especially with the lament Psalms. It might begin with a, a question or a concern directed to God about suffering or or injustice in the world and then he works his way through some things he doesn't have all the answers at the end but he's sort of cleared the fog out of his brain and he has a fresh commitment at the end to to do what the Lord says to walk in his ways now I suspect that some of us are afraid to talk to God about what we intend to do with his commandments Some of us would have to be honest and say, I don't intend to obey all your commandments today. And others of us would say, I'm not sure I want to tell him that I will seek him with my whole heart today because by lunchtime, I probably won't or not as much as I should. Well, you should understand that this kind of biblical resolve isn't perfection, it's not predicting the future. Neither is it an oath, you know, promising God something that we should only do very, very carefully if we plan to fulfill it. Now, there's this other category of Scripture where it is saying to God and somewhat to ourselves, Lord, I will. And it means I really, really want to and plan to. It's not an oath. It's not predicting the future. It's a legitimate determination. It's a genuine desire. It's stating intentions even though we won't perfectly fulfill them. That kind of thing happens in some of our singing on a Sunday morning. We sometimes sing of emotions or commitments that are loftier than our experience. And as long as we understand what's happening there, it's not a bad thing. It's supposed to take us up. It's supposed to lift us up. It's a good thing. It's biblical. Back to Psalm 119 now. Look down. There's something else related here in the middle, the beginning of this second stanza, which is also related to the determination that we see all throughout It's almost like it's another thesis here, verses 1 through 3 being the first thesis. And then 9 through 11 kind of form another thesis or principle that guides the rest. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, this is the basis for his resolve and for his determination. He wants purity in his life. By the way, what kind of purity? Some would point out that he specifies here, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? And when you're talking young men in purity, we all know what he's talking about, some would say. This is about the, the thought life. This is about lust. This is about sexual purity. And maybe, maybe, but he's after more than just sexual purity, I believe. It's certainly true that this applies to sexual purity. So anyone here today who is struggling with, with lust or pornography and in verse 9 and verse 11 are not in your arsenal, you're not thinking on these things often, you're missing out. These verses certainly apply to sexual purity, but maybe not just sexual purity he's he's a man looking for purity in all forms and shapes and sizes and in every corner of life he's after purity and how do you get it how do you keep your way pure well he says you got to guard the way according to the word he says you got to seek god with the whole heart and then verse 11 he says you got to store up god's word in the heart and that's how you might not sin against him. Store up God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against him. There's a, apparently a relationship between the Bible and sin. There's a God-given strategy for fighting temptation. You store up God's word in your heart. So it's fair to ask if you've been, if you've been repeatedly defeated by a specific sin and you think there's no explanation for it a good question is what are you doing with the word how are you applying the word to this how are you using the word are you storing it up you say I don't know I don't know what that means to store up God's word well storing up God's word at least means treasuring his word that's what the word literally means. If you had a treasure in olden days before banks, you, you hid it somewhere. So you hide it, but you also treasure it. It's your treasure. And so treasuring God's word in our hearts, the center of our affections, it means we appreciate it and we, we have love for it. I think it also means meditating on it, chewing on it, ingesting it, putting it deep down within us, not just not just the word on our eyeballs, not just the, the word in our ears, but, but in our musing. I think it also probably means memorizing the Bible. That is parts of it, not all of it at once. To hide it in the heart means to put it there. And so the word isn't then out on a scroll. The word isn't merely floating in the air and disintegrating in a millisecond. To put it in our heart means we can pull it out any time. We have it within us. Now, Bible memorization is increasingly a neglected discipline among Christians. I confess that I've had eras of my Christian life which have done much better with memorization than the last year, five years, ten years, I don't know. Memorization is part of what God calls us to do with his word. It's what Jesus modeled for us. We'll see that at our Lord's Supper service this coming Wednesday. It's not just that Bible memorization is increasingly neglected. Wouldn't you say that we just live in a culture these days that is really bad with memorizing things? I used to know my friend down the street. I used to know his phone number by heart. I still do. 928-6837. Paul Board's home phone number. Maybe still today. I don't know. I didn't tell you the area code, so you can't call it. And So you might say, yeah, Ryan, I... Not only am I bad for this, not only is this culture bad, but I'm bad for this culture. I, I just don't memorize. I can't memorize a thing. I try to put it in and it flies out. John Piper preached a message at his church on this passage, and he challenged his church. He said, What if the church was giving away $1,000 for every Bible verse you could memorize? Could you memorize one or more? Jesus wept. There's a thousand bucks. <laughs> Except you probably don't know the reference, so that one doesn't count. But but you can memorize. And Piper asked the question then, why would a thousand dollars motivate you to memorize the Bible when God's word says that itself, the Bible is worth more. Psalm 19. More to be desired are they your rules than gold, even much fine gold. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now let me try to apply this uh, to a a few different kinds of people in this room. In weeks ahead, we'll get to other kinds of people, but these were the categories on my mind this week. Like young people. And by that, I mean under 18, let's say. Those of you under 18 you should know that there is a kind of clean living that really doesn't have much Bible in it. There is a way to not get in trouble, to basically keep the rules, to go to church, to answer questions in the youth group. And really, you don't care about the Bible. That's really dangerous because your clean living can deceive you. There is also a kind of Bible familiarity that doesn't go deep down within. It's not personal. There's no love for it there. If you're a young person under 18, another thing I might challenge you with is that now is the time to memorize your Bible. Your muscle memory, your, your, your muscle for memorization is pretty good right now and it's not going to stay that way. At 43, almost 44, that's just enough to know eh, it doesn't quite work the same way. They say you learn languages better when you're younger than when you're older. It's all proven. Get the Bible in you while you're young; it's easier. I'd also say, high schooler, you're not as busy as you think you are. I used to think I was so busy, and then in seminary, I thought I was so busy. And then when my first pastor, I thought I was so busy. And then now you look back, right, and you kind of chuckle. You're not that busy. Let me address this with busy moms of little kids. The story is told about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in London in the last century. Before that, he was a medical doctor. And one day he was visiting with some medical students and they were complaining to him that in the midst of their training and in long hours, they didn't have any time to read the Bible and really to pray. He bristled. He said, I'm a doctor. I've been where you are. You have time. After a long pause, he said, I make only one exception. The mother of preschool-aged children does not have time. The doctor says you don't have the time for the Bible. And that's just about right. We had four kids, five and under, at one time. I know about those days where moms don't wake up because of the alarm clock or the sun or because they're rested. It's because there are kids who need something and the day starts and boom, you're running. And then at the end, you're falling asleep at the couch. And you wish you had more Bible. You maybe remember days where you could linger long or longer with the Lord. The only thing I would maybe add to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said is that you should do what you can. Do whatever you can. Yes, know that this is an unusual season you're in. But do what you can. Put Bibles out and open in strategic places. Write verses on 3 by 5 cards when you get 15 seconds. Put the Bible around you. Get it in you. For those of you ladies who don't yet have kids, and you might in the future, you might want to tuck the Bible into your brain Now. There'll be a time when you're breastfeeding and your arms are holding a baby and you can't get a Bible open even though you're sitting right there, but you might be able to open it up in your brain if you've treasured it away. Well, we'll talk to more kinds of people in weeks ahead. Let's just stack up what he what he does, what the psalmist does with the word. What does he want to do? What is he determined to do? To keep it, to walk in it, to have his eyes fixed on it, to store it up in his heart. He declares it, verse 13. We didn't even talk about that one. It's not clear whether he's proclaiming it to others or rehearsing it for himself, maybe both. He he wants to meditate on the word and fix his eyes on God's ways. He says he will not forget it. And he delights in it. That's our fourth D. D Delight. Lastly and quickly, delight. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes and not forget your word. Now I suspect that there's a, a bit of a progression going on in this psalm. I think you can see it in our four D's this morning. It starts with direction, just what's needed, where we go for the path, the way. You go to the Word. And this kind of breeds a bit of dependence. Oh, man, we need to pray about this. We need His help for this. But that prayer of dependence is not one that makes Him lazy or fatalistic, He's diligent. His diligence is not mere grit. But it's diligence. It's discipline. But it leads to delight. It leads to delight. Where might you locate yourself this morning? Maybe you simply need to say, yeah, I've forgotten that what God says in his book is what's true and right. And I've been waffling. Ah. The culture, it's a lot of pressure at work. I don't want to say God created the earth, not out loud. Well, you might need to give attention to direction. Or you might know what the Bible says. You're okay with it, but you've gotten a little smug about it. You know, it's us versus them. And they're the bad ones. And hence it's been a long time since you asked God to help you and keep you. Or, or maybe you know dependence all too well. You keep leaning in. You keep praying. Yeah. But you're not actually doing anything after that. There's no diligence. No determination. Or maybe you've been diligent in your Bible reading in recent days. And you either feel smug about it, or maybe you just don't like it. You check the box, you check the box, you check the box, you check the box. And you think to yourself, a monkey could do this if he could read. Well, let's pray for more. Christian, let's pray for more. We need more, more of Him, not just more of the Bible, not just delighting in the Bible itself, but the God of the Bible. We commune with Him. We ask Him to help us. And we get up and we open the Bible and pray. I began talking about the length of this psalm with that story of George Wishart. I don't think the length of this psalm is accidental. Or unfortunate, like it needed an editor to kind of reduce this a little bit. I think the length of this psalm shows its importance, shows its centrality. And it shows that this is a matter of plotting. Day after day, this is how it goes. You talk to God about the Bible and you tell him about life. But it's all in light of the Bible. And you pray and ask for his help. Keep at it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray for those with us for whom it's not a delight. Some may be Christians. I suspect there are some non-Christians here as well. And the Bible is foreign, weird, confusing to them we pray Lord that you would not only illuminate your word and help them to see but you would show them specifically Jesus and you would save them we pray Lord for every Christian here Lord would you just move us from one degree of glory to another would you just continue to show us wonderful things from your word And may we continue, may we grow in finding our rest in you as we depend on you, knowing full well our great weaknesses. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.